It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. If you um, tuned in because you saw advertisements for the show, you know that today's show features the National Academy of Public Administration. If you work inside or around the Beltway, everybody knows them as NAPA. NAPA has been around for many decades, an incredibly well-respected organization. And for many people who come to work um, in our nation's capital, they care about public administration. They care about public policy, not just politics. And if you care about public administration, and public policy, Napa's the place you want to go and talk to. We're very fortunate to have with us um, today the president and CEO, Dan Blair. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Deborah. How are you? I'm, I'm, um, I'm having a good day so far, and it's a real honor, Dan, to have you back on the show. I know you've been on our show before. Um, Dan it, um, is a very familiar name for those of you who um, come to work for the U.S. government. Dan's um, had two presidential appointments. The um, the last position he held was the deputy director of OPM from 2002 to 2006. Um, he thinks his favorite position, though, was chairman of the uh, Postal Regulatory Commission. And um, but but people still complain about the Postal Service, Dan. Well, they do, but um, <laughs> right. I think that every it, it touches everyone every day. It does. It's one of the most. Uh, visible signs of our federal government out there yeah yeah and um and it really you know with all its criticism in all fairness it it's amazing how um people you know what you count on happening every day in, in terms of commerce and everything else that matters the postal the postal service really um you know people get like, a lot of criticism amazing um, institution it is it really is before that dan spent many many years um as a senior staffer in both the house and the senate working um on the civil service uh committees governmental affairs committees and so i think a natural um a natural place for him to to be right now is over at napa where he's been since 2011 um, and joining Dan from Napa is Joe Mitchell. Good morning, good, Joe. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being yeah. here. It's Joe's maiden voyage to yeah. Fed Talk. Um, Joe's been with Napa for 15 years, and I said that's I'm, okay. I'm a teenager now. That's yeah. okay. I I've been at I've been at my place of employment for 25 yeah. years. I understand tenure, and um, um, Joe's going to be great. Joe is the um, the director of studies over at Napa, and. Um, if you go on their website, it's Napa. It's NapaWash.org. NapaWash.org. And you click on their studies, you'll then get a sense of what Joe really does every day. Um, he has his Ph.D. and master's in public administration. And um, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dan for about 20 minutes, uh, uh, Joe, 20 minutes before the show. And um, he knows his stuff. It was, it was great prep for the show. Yeah, he Thank knows you. his stuff. He knows his stuff. So we'll be digging into some of those studies. 
And joining us by phone is um, David Chu. David, are you with us? I'm here, Deborah. How are you? I'm good, and I'm I'm uh, really really delighted to be able to have you as a guest. Um, David also has a very long and noble career serving in government. Um, he's currently the president of the Institute for Defense Analysis, um, but um, certainly I think he's probably best known as being the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness from 2001 to 2009. Uh, David, that had to be a very serious job. Yes, indeed. It well, was during very serious times. Um, and and Dave, David has also been a, a member of uh, the board of NAPA and currently co-chairs or has co-chaired um, several of their studies. So um, we're really, really honored to be able to have you. David's joining us by phone. Um, and before we dive into some of the stuff that's going on at NAPA currently that I think a lot of people would find very interesting, Dan, I thought we'd start with you and explain to people, you know, who, what is NAPA and um, and how do you work there? <laughs> I'm happy to do that, Deborah. Uh, the National Academy of Public Administration, finally known as NAPA, is a nonprofit independent organization that was chartered by Congress in 1984. When I say chartered, Congress actually enacted its letters of incorporation. We're a nonprofit corporation in the District of Columbia. So we were formed uh, a couple, several decades before that by, by a series of uh, wise men in public administration, like Elmer Stotts, who was the former Comptroller General at the, uh, at the GAO, James Webb, who was the former administrator at NASA. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they formed it was that here were, here were very wise men leading, leading incredible organizations at the time, and they could rely upon the National Academies of Sciences for independent objective advice when it came to science. But they did not have a counterpart when it came to issues of management and public administration. So they wisely get uh, brought together um, a series of uh, individuals who became the core of the National Academy of Public Administration. Hmm. We are one of two research institutions that Congress has chartered, the other being the National Academies of Sciences. We hold that um, charter very dear and we're quite proud of that. And we and everything we do is is to honor that charter and stay true to that charter. And the and the work you get, the studies when you go on your website and you see the studies that have either been accomplished or in progress, um, they're directed by Congress, right? About half of them are, and the other half are either done by way of uh, uh, working with agencies and through different procurement uh, opportunities or with the private sector. We've done private sector work before who from organizations that wanted to, uh, and we'll talk about one of these later today, but from organizations that wanted to bring in the academy to highlight certain management issues or public administration challenges. But really our, our key um, customer has been Congress mm -hmm. over the years. Mm -hmm. And we've developed a very good working relationship with a number of authorizing committees and the appropriators on both the House and the Senate side. Uh, we work them, Joe and I go up there probably weekly to meet with staff uh, meet with members to address issues and talk about what we can do to help them when it comes to their issues of trying to solve some serious management problems yeah. in the federal government. You know, that's it's interesting to me because that's very like that's an unknown. That's not what Congress is known for today in town. Most people, you know, who work around town think that the only thing happening in Congress is political move maneuvering. 
um, and that they're really, con particularly federal workers, that Congress cares about the actual administration as opposed to just picking, you know, picking on federal workers. They feel picked on. Um, so the idea that you're up there once a week um, because members of Congress really do care about public administration, I think, um, is refreshing. Well, I, and it's been that way since I've since I've been at the academy since 2011, and historically it's been that way. We've always had a core group of members of Congress on both sides that have been very passionate about these issues. And I had Tom the, Davis, Tom Davis, mm -hmm. uh, George Voinovich, and Dana Kaka. Right. Um, I worked. The last House member I worked for was John McHugh, and he was very passionate about postal reform. And, and public service, and now you see see that he's the secretary, a long-serving uh, secretary of the Army. And so there are members of Congress who take these things very, very seriously. I had the chance to testify a couple weeks ago before the Senate subcommittee handling federal uh, employee issues. And while I thought that I was a little surprised by the sparse crowd, the senators that showed up were very interested in this. They were all freshmen. You had uh, Senator Langford who is the chair, and he is genuinely interested in seeing how we can better the, better the workforce. He comes from one political perspective, but the ranking Democrat is Heidi Heitkamp from North Dakota. She comes from, a, a, I wouldn't say a 180 degree, but that she comes from a different political mm -hmm, perspective. Mm -hmm. But I think that they found some common ground there. And this was a, this was a, a far-reaching hearing talking about improvements in the federal workforce and what we can do to set up the federal workforce, not just improve it today, but I also think about these are issues that Congress should be thinking about and teeing up for the presidential transition. Mm -hmm. And, we, you know, that's our next topic. Um, we will be talking about what the um, uh, what Napa is doing with regard to planning ahead for um, 2016 transition, even though it, it we're, you know, we're a ways away. Um, and um, and there's some interesting work that you and, and um, David are working on, and I do want to get to that. We're going to get to that next, but we need to take our first commercial break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit LTC. FEDS.com today. That's LTCFEDS.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth hosting today's show. Uh, today's show focuses on the National Academy of Public Administration, NAPA. With us in the studios, Dan Blair, the president and CEO of NAPA, Joe Mitchell, who is the director of studies, and on the phone we have David Chu who um, has been uh, very involved in the work of NAPA. And actually, David, what I'd like to get to now is the work that NAPA is doing um, on the 2016 initiative. So if you and Dan could tee that up for us, tell, the, tell our listeners what that is and what you, you, know, what you hope to, um, what the expectation is of what it will um, address um, in the next presidential transition. Well, delighted to ever do that. Uh Maybe I can offer a few words to start and, and turn to Dan. Uh, essentially, what we hope to be able to do is offer uh, to, to both candidates, uh, uh, whoever they might eventually be, uh, 
good offices of uh, Napa's uh, fellows' experience uh, in the federal government, also at the state and local level, uh, as uh, to what you might call program implementation. In other words, how do you actually get things done? So right. we're, we're not into what the policy ought to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recognize those would be big national issues. But once administrations decide on this policy direction, how do you make that effective? How do you carry out the program in a way that uh, fulfills the intent of its uh, originators? We've all seen examples where there are good intentions, but they go off the rails in terms of what actually gets uh, done. And the academy has the benefit of a, a rich cross-section of individuals who have worked in different administrations, different mm-hmm. cabinet agencies across the years, uh, who can uh, bring the benefit of their knowledge to bear on uh, what can be uh, effective out there. How, how can we be sure the federal government properly earns uh, the, the respect uh, and uh, the support of the citizenry that pays, pays the taxes that supports it? Dan? Well, I think David hit the nail on the head when he mentioned respect of the citizen, citizenry that uh, supports the federal government today. We've seen uh, the federal government at, at, in, in polls having the lowest level of trust that it has had, uh, probably has ever had. And that this trust, this lack of trust in government feeds into the cynicism about government. Mm-hmm. And what we want to do is utilize this initiative as, as a way of turning that around. We know it can't be done in a day or a week or a year, but at least if you can have an effective and efficient transition for the new, and we're going to have the transition. We, we have an opportunity this time. We're going to, we know we're going to have a new president. And we'll be working with both camps to make sure that, as David said, to provide the background and experience of the fellows that they can provide, not policy, but just the background on these, these contentious issues. But if you can start building that today and build that through the transition, the transition may just be a little bit more effective, which means that they come into office in a little bit better position than they otherwise would have. That we'll want to be able to identify those programs that work and don't work and maybe f- identify those gaps. And as the churn of the transition continues, if we can quiet that down a bit and allow them the ability to govern, we might just be able to address and solve some of these problems. It will allow them to have a greater attention to management, mm-hmm. uh, a greater attention to results, and it can get government working the way that the citizen, citizenry uh, expects. And that can build and rebuild that level of trust. So, David, I'm curious from someone who served um, in an incredibly high profile position in government, um, you know, at the at a transition point. Um, why? Why do you how did it get to be that Napa's focusing on tra- on the transition between presidential administrations as a way of. Um, improving the management of government? Uh, there are several reasons. One, of course, is that, that uh, uh, it, it's one thing to be outside the government looking in mm-hmm. uh, and to think that you can do X, Y, or Z. Uh, it's quite another to have uh, actually dealt with the realities, the limits, uh, the constraints, the, the challenges the government faces. So it, in, my, in my experience, it always looks easier from the outside than it looks when you are sitting at that desk or at that standing at that podium in front of the news media, uh, actually dealing with the uh, instant issue. And I've been through, as you uh, point out, uh, a couple of transitions, mm-hmm. transitions now. And uh, uh, both as the incoming person, I realized, oh my lord, how little I knew 
of what was really going on here. And uh, but maybe this, maybe the last team wasn't quite as inept as I thought it was. Uh, and uh, had I only known X, uh, Y, or Z earlier, I could do a better job. I've also been on the, the departing end, so to speak, and seeing the look of shock on the faces of newcomers who thought that, uh, I'll give you a specific instance, there were, there were budgetary savings to be had from various management improvements. I had to tell them, look, we're already doing that. Mm-hmm. It's already part, that's already built into the estimates. Uh, uh, if you think that's going to give you a dividend to carry out the new administration's agenda, you'll need to think again. Uh, and so the earlier there can be discussion of what are the pressing management issues, either inherited from the past or being triggered by present events, or that will arise because the direction the administration wants to take, the better off you're going to be. And that that means, again, not dealing with policy choices. Right. But the choices have been made. How you carry them out can make a big difference in how the program actually works. And, and so is the plan is the plan to get involved um, with the potential new administrations um, before the general election at, or, or, or once a candidate has been um, um, elected? No, no, the plan is to do it early, uh, and, and uh, as uh, Dan has uh, decided, we'll be reaching out pretty soon to the various campaigns that we are here. We're happy to offer you the benefit of uh, insights NAPA has developed to the extent you're interested. Uh, that's mostly to alert uh, the various campaigns that uh, we are willing to be helpful I think the focus will be on the two candidates once they emerge. Right. But the idea is really pre-election. Once the election has happened, at least if passed is prologue, uh, the the new team will be extremely busy, and it will not be uh, comfortable uh, or or interested in talking to a new face that shows up at that stage. So we need to build a relationship of trust with the various parties. That again, we're not dealing with policy. We're here to help whoever wins carry out his or her policies in an effective way. And so, Dan, what makes you think that um, <clears throat> the candidates will be interested in hearing from Napa? That th- that they will care at that stage of the election process about um, having not yet been elected, right? Um, that they would that they would care as opposed to just a dialogue as as David points out, you know the election's really a dialogue about ideas and, and policy, um, not about how to implement it when you get in or maybe that's what the new dialogue's going to be about. Well, I think there are twofold um, two, twofold answers to that question. One is that's why we have David. Um, we have people involved with David stature. He's well known in the Republican circles. He has the ability to talk, and he's respected, and and people will listen. On the Democratic side, we have Ed DeSev, who served in both the Clinton and the Obama administrations. Again, he's well-respected, despite uh, you know, who the Democratic candidate may be. They will listen, and they will listen to these folks. Yeah, we have, uh, I've been involved in transitions, the chair of our board, Robert Shea's been involved in transitions, and we have that, we have that fundamental uh, human capital at the uh, at the academy of, uh, comprised of our fellows that we can utilize in order to touch base with the appropriate people. But moreover, I think one of the initiatives that we want to uh, highlight is that 
when a new administration comes in, no matter who it is, there's a um, there is that tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They want to they want to make their mark, own mark in history. Anything that was associated with the past administration, even if it was of your own party, is going to be looked at skeptically. And there's this tendency to well, let's we want to start afresh and new. And that will. And you, you hear that every four years. You hear that every four <laughs> right. years. And the thing is that they were elected oftentimes on a change platform. But believe it or not, there are some good things going on in government today. One of the first things I think about is the evidence agenda and program evaluation. How are we evaluating the programs that work and don't work? And we want to be able to give this kind of information to the transition teams to show what improvement, uh, what initiatives uh, are in need of improvement, which ones are working in an effort to say, you know, strengthen this and for them to make those decisions to say strengthen this or let's go in a different direction. So but, you, you actually plan on going in with a developed sort of, I don't want to say agenda, but you know, you know the programs you want to talk about. You're identifying them before you actually start talking to the candidates. We'll be identifying some of those programs. Mm -hmm. We've actually gone out with a survey to our fellows to say, let's see what are these areas in which we want to highlight when it comes to our um, transition efforts. And we'll be building off, we'll be getting those results in, and we'll be building off of that in order to say these are the areas that we want to focus on. And I think really also just highlighting, you know, the basic principles of, you know, transformation, tra transition, um, and having fellows with the background that we have, I think it's going to be very helpful to these candidates. So you plan on uh, formalized, formalized briefings and... Um um, uh, discussions. We have three legs to this initiative. Okay. The first leg is the uh, the effort that David and Ed are leading, and this has this is political in nature, but it's also it, it's substantive in the terms of we can provide the background information to the uh, campaigns and to the transition teams in order to them in order for them to uh, set the policy. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is we're partnering with partnering with the American Society for Public Administration (ASPA) which is comprised of practitioners and academics from across the country. We did this in 2012. We'll be doing this again. And these are where we can write white papers, reports, testimonies, and things, which can serve as a basis for what uh, Ed and Dave and some other team members can do in terms of their interactions with the campaigns and, transi and transition teams. Then we're also inventorying and spotlighting the toughest jobs in government today and the incumbents We've been doing this for the last four years in partnership with Ernst & Young, and it's a successor to the old Prunes book. I don't know if you remember the Prunes book. Every four years, we come out with the, the Congress comes out with the Plum book. Uh, it, they work with the OPM, and it's, it's alternates between the House and Senate, but these are all the political positions in government. And they called the Plum book because the cover used to be Plum, but then it was also considered to be these are Plum jobs. Yeah, um, that's what it but, sounds like. Well, we highlighted the ones that are the most difficult. And, uh, and the idea was uh, back in the day that a, a prune is a seasoned plum. And we are highlighting these positions. This was originally done by the Council for Excellence in Government. And when that organization uh, uh, transitioned out of existence, we picked, they gave that program to us. And we've been very pleased to be able to do this. And we were updating these bio biographies. They're on, our web, they're on a website called Political Pointee Project. Org. And it's very interesting to see the incumbents' views and how this is working. So this is all part of a three-legged stool, mm -hmm. it, which is our uh, transition initiative. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to have to circle back, it seems, with NAPA 
um, maybe in the fall, yeah, right? We'd be welcome to, happy to come back. And, yeah, um, see how that worked out. I mean, it's an intriguing idea just to talk about the running of government before the person has been selected to do it. Because historically, Dan, as you point out, um, they start thinking about how to actually run government, operate it the day-to-day, the day after the general election. Mm-hmm. It's called the transition mm-hmm. team. Um, but usually, you know, in today's, my impression, um, but, you know, David, probably, and you could speak to it differently because you actually were on transition teams. But to me, it's more like just how do you get people in place? Well, for so long. Getting people in place isn't necessarily, how are we going to run it? Well, for so long, it was political suicide to talk about transition because it showed a presumptiveness on the part of the campaign that they were going to be elected. And so every anything associated with the transition was always hidden or just wasn't attended to. And we've seen what's happened with bad transitions. Uh, the 2000 uh, election, and because of the court case, it was very truncated. And that's oftentimes highlighted as an example of that was not an efficient transition. Interestingly, the 2008 transition was very much different. Um, GSA Probably has a, because the Bush administration had been on the receiving end of a very bad transition well, and that, appreciated that, right? There absolutely. Was, there was that learning curve. And, that, and the president paid attention to it. The president personally was involved and directed his agency and department has to cooperate fully. But now, the, once you have the, the candidates are certified by their parties, GSA has the ability to fund those transition teams. Uh, in 2012, uh, Governor Romney had a full-fledged transition up and running prior to the election. They had office space in an office, a federal office building in Southwest. And what a well-kept secret. And it's you know probably the best transition that ever took place. But it was very, it was very well run, very uh, it was and hmm. very prepared. That had the election gone the other way, he would have been able to step in the day after the election put the teams in place to go into the agencies and departments and make that effort much smoother and get ahead of the curve mm-hmm. rather than be behind it. Mm-hmm. And you're just, Napa's now even trying to get them even more ahead of the curve. Um, you know, this massive thing we call government, which we, which is generally referred to the executive branch of government, just feels, I know we have to take a break, but it just feels to me that it's getting bigger and bigger. And I don't mean person-wise, uh, mission-wise, um, dollar-wise, that managing it just seems, uh, if it were me, I'd throw my hands up and walk away and go, can't get done, you know? It just, it feels it feels harder and harder and more impossible to wrap your hands around. And so I see the wisdom in backing it up even earlier to start informing that person, here's how you're going to have to run your government. Um, you know, I see that as one element to wrapping your arms around the, the problems that so many people have identified today with, you know, the effectiveness of how government works. Um, really interesting. I think I want to. I want Napa to come back. Certainly, David to talk about his experience in Leg One. David, if you're willing, later on in the year, <clears throat> have you guys come back on the show talk about how it played out? It's a first go. It'd be very interesting. Um, but we do need to take our mid-show commercial break. When we come back. Joe, we're going to start talking about Great. some of your I'm current happy to, studies. Happy to tell you more about our current work. And um, um, follow up on some of the reports that have been issued. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. 
With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show with the National Academy of Public Administration. Today, our guests are Dan Blair. He's the president and CEO of NAPA. Joe Mitchell is the director of studies at NAPA, where he's been for 15 years. David Chu, who affiliates with NAPA as a NAPA fellow, is the president and CEO of IDA. We spent the last um, 15 minutes talking about the 2016 Transition Initiative, which is was new to NAPA and sort of new to the whole concept of presidential elections and transitions. Um, but NAPA does so much more day-to-day stuff, Joe, um, you know, uh, in its uh, studies and um Oh, the work of its fellows, and I thought we could touch on like what's what's the what's current, what's going on today right. at NAPA. I'm happy to do that. I, I would just say, as, as um, Dan and David have talked, uh, we have a lot of activities going on, and one of those is the studies program uh, that I lead. And uh, just to step, take a step back, um, we get our studies from congressional directive also from agencies coming to us and also foundations and private entities. And they tend to focus on you know, organizational assessments, um, so where an organization is, where it needs to go, uh, strategy developments, a lot of strategic planning type activities, um, and implementation assistance to agencies, as well as um, stakeholder outreach and collaboration. Um, and we draw upon the resource that we have in our 800 fellows. Those are individuals that, um, as we've talked about, have had distinguished careers at all levels of government, um, in academia and the private sector, um, they're really a national asset, and so we use those individuals when we do our studies. And so we'll form what we call a panel um, that usually consists of three to seven fellows, depending on the uh, size of the study, the scope, the needs. Um, and those individuals are then also staffed by what we call a study team. And those are individuals that have had also had um, experience working in and around government. A lot of our project directors are people that were senior executives in the federal government. So what's interesting is that Congress and agencies um, and really the American public in general also get um, you know this the seasoned expertise at both the, the panel and the study team level. And so we're really excited about you know being able to do that work. And NAP has 800 fellows. Yes. Um, that that's a workforce. Yeah. That's a potential. It's, it's, that's a bench. We, we we try to put them to work. Yes. Um, so you, I can talk a little bit about. Um, yeah. A tell us what's going on right now. Uh, just a couple of the current studies. Sure. So we are working uh, right now with the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture to help design a new undersecretary. Um, it would be an undersecretary of agriculture for trade and foreign agricultural affairs. Uh, this was a mandate. Um, by Congress, and uh, we are going to be reporting out in October of this year, so we're still in process. Um, if you think about it, uh, this is an important um, 
issue because uh, 95% of the world's consumers live outside the United States. So trade is um, an important part um, of the American economy. Um, and in agriculture in particular, um, the trade has grown from just um, about $29 billion in 1978 um, to $152 billion this past year, and that was a record. Um, and 25% of all U.S. farm receipts are actually from trade. So um, yet at the same time, the agriculture's um, department's trade organization has not changed much, uh, if, if any, since 1978. And so it, it was definitely time. Well, to congratulations to Congress to figuring this. out that that yes. um, that there was a gap in to, organizational structure that yes. didn't, um, you know, meet the needs of, um, you know, what was sort of happening on the ground. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm just I'm, I'm is, amazed to is, hear Congress is actually doing some it's, of its job. It's, it's very good, and and it's typical. You know, a lot of times agencies. I mean, the structure dates back um, to you know when when programs were originally established. Um, so you really have to keep updating these organizations, and that's that's the job. So that Napa's we're doing, doing here. what's Napa's what is so Napa job, asked to do? So what we're specifically doing is um, for this undersecretary for trade and foreign agricultural affairs yeah. is looking at. <clears throat> options for how to structure this organization. Um, it's um, a complex uh, set of issues because you also have to look at, well, what exactly should go into this organization? And obviously you could you know, kind of have a lighter version, you could have a medium-sized version, a heavier version. What are the implications for the other undersecretaries, the existing ones? What are the implications for the workforce? Um, in particular, how should this undersecretary position relate to the regulatory um, agencies inside USDA? That would be things like the food safety right. um, and inspection and the animal and plant health and plant um, health. APHIS. APHIS. So it's a, a challenging set of issues, but it's a really interesting project, and I'd love to come back on the program when we release the report. When you launch, talk right? In more, in more detail. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm a geek, I guess, because I get great pleasure in yes. hearing that Congress actually identified a real gap in the way government was operating, not, not something based upon politics. You know, it wasn't just there to jibe at the, at the executive branch and find a problem and make fun of it, um, but really was, you know, interested in fixing it. And the food mm. supply, people don't really think about that. How, you know, when you think about national security issues, people right. think, you know, today Americans think about, you know, terrorism, right? Um, but the food supply, if, if I'm running the government, the food supply is at the top of the yeah. list. There's... Well, one other thing I, want, I wanted to point out about this, too, is also it shows you that when Congress is confronted with these complex problems, they turn to the Academy for some solutions. And one of the reasons they do that is that we can tap into that strong bench of 800 fellows. Mm. And I was just looking at who, when we do these studies, we, Joe referenced earlier, we put together a panel of fellows. We go out to all 800 fellows with a, what's called a call to fellows. We describe the, pro, uh, the project, what the skill sets we're looking at, and we get fellows actually applying to sit on these panels. And we usually get a generally robust uh, turnout robust of fellows. response, you know, and so then we have to have the difficult job of choosing who's actually going to be on the panel, which is not always easy. But just give me a, to give you a flavor of who's on this agriculture panel, Susan Offit, who's the chief economist at GAO, Raphael Boris, who used to be at DHS as the undersecretary for management. Yep, he used to run the place. Larry Cooley, who... I uh, was the founder of Management Systems International, a major, major player in the international aid world. 
Mac Dessler, who is a professor at the University of Maryland, and Bob, Bob Nash, Nash, who used to be the head of PPO in the Clinton administration. I mean, these this is an incredible group of people. Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't combine these people uh, in any other world than what you can find. Yeah, no, I've I've job envy right now. <laughs> um, well, maybe you can come work for us. I we're would off, like we're that. oftentimes I, looking for talent. I so. have job envy. Um, <laughs> Um, and uh, to me, again, I really come back to this. Um, you know, I, I get warmed that um, a warm heart that Congress, you know, is there is there are part there are times there are moments when Congress is getting its job done um, and helping out the executive branch and the American public. Um, and this is definitely yeah. one example. Another, Another one you're working one on, I know, is the PTO. Right right. And, and David is actually is the panel chair of that, um, so he could speak on this as well, um, is a review um, by from that was requested by the um, Patent and Trademark Office to review their telework program. And there are really two parts to this review. There's an internal controls review, which is really looking at you know, management controls over time and attendance and telework. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is really a broader programmatic review of looking at how effective is this program and are there differences in production from um, people who are working at home versus people who are working in the office? How are they managed? Um, What are some of the issues that supervisors encounter uh, with with teleworkers? And so those are the things that we're looking at. And that report will be out um, next month, actually. So we'd be happy to come back and and talk in more detail about that. And, And David, I'd like to bring you into the conversation about PTO. Um, I'm sure that this, um, the work that NAPA is doing for PTO um, is a result of the Department of Commerce IG investigation, right, that, that showed um, um, that people were, quote, unquote, at home teleworking, but in fact not working at all. Um, and um, what's, I'm sort of curious, how, how has NAPA been received inside of PTO looking at this very beloved program? Uh, with with great uh, our goodwill, I should emphasize. So uh, we've had meetings both with seniors and, and working-level people. Uh, they've been quite open uh, about uh, giving us access. Uh, they indeed, uh, most importantly, uh, I, don't, I, I don't want to talk to results because it's not uh, appropriate until we release the report. Right. Uh, let me speak to one of the instruments, which was uh, they uh, allowed us to do a, a survey of their uh, some of their personnel uh, about how uh, PTO actually, uh, how, how the, especially the telework aspect of PTO actually works. Uh, and that would be a powerful part of the final report. So, um, uh, yes, they have been subject to considerable, uh, shall we say, review, putting it mildly, yeah. of the telework program of what may or may not be happening. Uh, I, I also think. Um, uh, this is getting a little bit ahead of the report. I think we want to uh, wait for some of the facts to be presented before we reach any conclusions about what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would I would just urge turning down the temperature a little bit on the uh, on the issue and uh, let the report findings uh, uh, help us uh, guide to uh, a good future here. But you're right, uh, PTO's approach to its responsibilities very much does hinge on. Uh, making telework uh, effective and making and, and they and they are very keen on continuing the program. Yeah, and and sort of for me the juxtaposition, David, that I find very interesting is that for the last what two years, PT was it two years PTO made for the agency of its size, it made number one best places to work, um, and 
um, it was a, a year or two ago, I guess when they made the list the first time, their chief human capital officer's name, I forgot. I, he's a great guy. He was on, I actually hosted the show. And I remember he, one of the things he pointed to that, um, that he attributed to um, having such a high morale in his workforce was a very robust, strong, and well-respected um, telework program. And then you fast forward like two years later and you see the IG sort of take it down. Um, you know, I, I, I got concerned about that issue of employee. I mean, employee morale and engagement is there's a direct consequence to the success of the agency. Um, You're absolutely right. Uh, PDO management does put great stuff here. But let me ask you to wait for the report's findings uh, uh, for us to comment on, on the challenge you've offered. Yeah, and, and I actually, as an employer and as an employment lawyer, I'm always interested in the sort of opposing views about telework, which is, you know, from the employer's perspective, if you're not there, often you're, um, you know, you, the accessibility of having you um, deal with an issue that arises, you know, these are they're what they call lost opportunities. Um, and so I always, you know, I think it's an incredible, I know that OPM's position is to promote um, telework programs across government, but I do think that finding the right balance so that you have the employees that you need where you need them when things happen, I think is very challenging um, for any employer, particularly an employer the size of the executive branch. So I think a lot of people are going to be looking at what you have to say. Well, we look forward to being able to, uh, to report. And um, when you report, we'll be sure to make sure somehow we get you back on yeah, we to tell oh, us. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome. Hopefully, have, you won't get tired of us. Summer, yeah. or, yeah. Right. Well, though, yeah. I, I mean, that telework program was held up as, you know, one of the best in government. It's in part what got PTO to best places to work. And then the IG just, you know, um, whether, you know, I, I'm skeptical about IG reports. I think there's, you know, there's alarm bells being sent off um, through cross government by IGs that sometimes the histrionics are not helpful. Um, so I, I think it's going to be when I saw that Napa was actually studying um, what the issues were that got raised in the IG report, I thought, won't this be interesting to see the juxtaposition between the Commerce IG report and what Napa has to say? So, David, all eyes are on you. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or at, le at least our eyes. No, no pressure otherwise. Right. Um, we're going to take the final break for our show. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other work um, and studies that NAP is engaged in. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk. I'm Deborah Roth. I'm hosting today's show. Today we have with us in the studio and on the line 
um, the National Academy of Public Administration. We have Dan Blair, who's their president and CEO. We have Joe Mitchell, who is the director of studies, and David Chu, who is the president and CDO of IDA, and the co-chair, we're all going to be watching, mm -hmm. David, the co-chair of the uh, PTO report that I understand will be coming out soon on telework. Um, Joe, circling back to you, I know that there's a, a report in particular that you find to be very interesting and insightful about maybe a lot of the work NAPA's doing, and I thought we'd touch on that well, now. Well, I thought that it, this was as a good one to kind of frame a lot of the issues that we're facing in the public sector, and that is our recent uh, Federal Digital Insight Survey. Uh, we partnered with ICF International on this, this work, and last year we uh, surveyed a randomly selected group of uh, federal uh, leaders, um, civil servants at the GS-13 and above level, and we had some really interesting uh, findings. Um, the um, it, it was interesting that you know we've also, we were, were saying around the office you know technology has won. Um, federal employees are digital workers. Uh, they embrace technology and its benefits. I think sometimes that's not um, the popular uh, conception, but it is the case. Over ninety percent uh, said it had improved uh, productivity. Um, and over and about 90% said that it was helping them in serving agency stakeholders. Um, they also view digital technology as a business imperative. Um, they really think that it's very important. However, just over 40% um, said that their agency was dedicating appropriate resources to digital technology. So there's a concern, um, and that's also related to just a broader concern mm. that the federal government um, may not be able to keep pace with uh, change um, in the private sector, relative to the private sector. What's interesting is only 15%. You mean with regard to technology? Yes. Only 15% said their agency was making new technology available to its employees at the same pace as the private sector. So that's a big gap uh, that we'll need to fill. Um, some of that was um, ascribed to slow acquisition processes that were seen as barriers uh, to digital technology. Um, another interesting finding was that federal leaders themselves believe that they are adequately trained on the use of technology, but they're concerned that the workforce as a whole is not. So that highlighted some training issues. Um, and then the last thing, and you and I had a conversation mm -hmm. about this before mm. the show, was the whole issue of work-life balance mm -hmm. um, and kind of the double-edged sword of, of this technology. A little over a third said that the technology had harmed their um, work-life balance. Because they have to answer an email. Yeah. Constantly. You know, they feel the need to answer an email at 11 o'clock at night when I'm sure that email could, that's my version, could, could have, have waited to tomorrow morning. A third, however, said that it had helped. And I think that that's probably, you know, it's, it's that vacation that you're taking and you're working on your vacation and you're thinking, well, it's because of this technology that I'm working. But right. at the same time, maybe it's because of that technology that you can take the vacation. Right. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I've been working, going to work every day as a lawyer here in the law firm for 25 years. And... I I have a faint memory, it's getting fainter every day, about working um, before computers, before, at the advent of voicemail. Like, I remember the advent of voicemail when it went from the tape recorder machine to now you mm. actually had your own voicemail that you could listen to, as opposed to a secretary taking a message for every call that came in. But But my point about all that is that because of technology, the pace of work, is, a, is like a million times faster of what a worker is expected to get done correctly is like a million times faster than when I went to work 25 years ago. And I think 
that you remember that conversation yeah, Joe you and absolutely. I had before yeah. the show you know part of it is you know of an appreciation for what your job really does require but on the other hand things do happen much faster in today's economy they do and they don't necessarily wait for you to come back for your from your vacation yeah it's i mean it's a real challenge and i think a lot of it comes down to supervisors and what the supervisors expect and if the supervisors are spend, sending emails at all hours then people think that as an employee i need to be responding at all hours so um so it was interesting the work life balance that about a third mm-hmm. said it had harmed about a third had said it had helped and then about a third said that um it hadn't had an impact. Yeah. And now this is the federal federal digital insights report. Yes. And what we're going to do is we're going to do this it's um, online. It's, it is online. It's on our website. And we're going to uh, do the survey again this year. And we're hoping that it will be an annual um, survey. Again, we're working with ICF International on this. And we think that now that we've got a good baseline, it'll be really interesting to see how these issues evolve over time. Right. And what I like is how this relates, the, the survey and its findings relate to some of the other work that NAP is doing and has done. You know, the idea of how technology pushes um, the, the expectation of workflow, efficiency, um, service to citizens. Well, think about the um, PTO work we're doing. Um, you couldn't telework without this kind of digital technology. And it, I was laughing and thinking about the workplace of 25 years ago. I started a little bit before you, but I remember walking into my office and it, you, you had typists. And they were on the Selectrics, which were considered to be far superior to the old electric typewriters, which came after the Royal, the manual Royals. And so it's just evolution of the federal workplace. And the other thing is that if you look at the workplace of 50 years ago, we were an army of clerk type of right. clerk typists. I right. mean, that's that's the kind of worker that was in the. And the civil government. service exam worked well because it was how many words it, could you type correctly in a minute? I mean, it did work well then. It did work well because you improved year after year after year, but we still have that same system too. So that's why you know just another uh, agenda is to look at how can we reform the civil service to reflect what we have in terms of the workforce today and to meet the needs of government today. And I think that that's a good segue to the last report I would just highlight, which was our Social Security yeah. study where um, yeah. the request to Congress. Where people like me at the very bottom of the baby boomer generation, I'm sitting there saying, I better get my benefits well, when it's my right. turn. Well, we were focusing <laughs> on much, much more. We, we were focusing on really the and, service and, delivery well, um, of this, which and, obviously and we hope the, that there are benefits sure, for Sure, and at the end of, of the baby boomer generation, most of the baby boomers at the top of the generation will still be alive. And you think about the swell of people um, being serviced by the Social Security Administration. It's just growing. Well, and what's interesting, we were asked to look at, you know, well, really, how should services be delivered in the 2025 to 2030 timeframe? So looking out into the future. Um, and what's interesting is, is that people, you know, the, the panel that we formed for this really had a vision that was much more um, provide quality digital services, you know, quality virtual services as much as possible, online, phone, video conference, while, of course, having personal delivery where needed um, and where appropriate. But, you know, the, the, in the future, people are really going to want to be served in a different way. Uh, people are not going to want to go to a, a Social Security office unless they need to. And so, you know, our vision was really, you know, trying to, to balance, obviously, you've got to have those services available for people who need the in-person, mm-hmm. but you've got to make sure that there is 
a way that people can obtain those services through other means. Um, and increasingly, as people, um, you know, we're going to have this technology that's going to allow us to do that. Mm-hmm. It's very technology-driven yes. in part. Yes, it, it is. And I think that it's, 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 it's a challenge. You know, that study um, was interesting, too, because it really got into futures. And, and looking out to the future, obviously, um, is difficult. It's challenging. But it's something that we were really happy to do. And Social Security Administration is also doing some of that work, too. And so we hope that you know other agencies will start doing futures work because um, I think that services will be delivered in a different way in the future um, because people are going to demand that. Yeah, and one of the things, Joe, before the show, when we talked about this, I equated it to was investing in infrastructure, roads and roads, tunnels and bridges. Um, You know, to me, this is the part of the infrastructure of the American economy. Um, And, you know, you don't hear Congress saying, you know, they say, I want it to work better, but with all that technology... How are they going to fund it? And that's been the number one concern of Mary Amer- Americans mm-hmm. is this infrastructure in our countries, you know, not keeping up. De- it's decaying. It needs to get funded. When I looked at your mm-hmm. report for the Social mm-hmm. Security Administration, I was like, well, that's going to cost some money. Well, it, it will. It, there are certainly some upfront investments, but I think that there can be a lot of savings over the longer term as well as a result of that. Right. And and of course, that's for another study. Yes. Right. right. <laughs> um, or at least another time on, on federal right. news radio. So um, we're at the, we've come to the end of the show. I want to thank everyone for joining me today. David, um, thank you so much for being a guest. And um, we're looking forward to your PTO report. And Dan and Joe, we do hope that later on in the year, especially as we head into 2016, we'll get a read back on the 2016 presidential transition um, initiative. We'd love to come back and yes. talk to you about the progress we've made. Sure. Thanks for all the good work Absolutely. you do. Thank, Thank you, you so Deborah. much.